Good morning, guys. Welcome to Hiawatha Church. My name is Chris, one of the pastors here. Great to see you all. Uh, thank you if you're visiting, especially uh, for being here today. Welcome to you, as Spencer said, and welcome back to, to the rest of you. Great to see you all. Uh, we are in a series right now on the Gospel of John. We, this is week three of uh, what will be an 18-month series, so you're kind of getting in on the ground floor here a little bit if you're just joining. But um, we are going to be in chapter 1, verses 14 to 18 today, if you have a Bible want to turn there. Uh, but if you're a brand new to this especially, there, there are four gospel accounts, we call them, of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which all tell us the story of Jesus' life, basically, all culminating with his death and resurrection, which is pretty key that they all uh, agree on that, and they all obviously agree, but, um, but they all end that way, which tells us that's really the most important part because they don't all share all the same material necessarily. Uh, John does not start with his birth like a couple of the gospel accounts do. He starts with this kind of like really epic, big picture view of him uh, before he was incarnate. So he was, uh, what, he was the son of God, the pre-incarnate Christ. Uh, here in John 1 called the word, the word of God, uh, which tells us that Jesus is something God is saying to us. Uh, he is not simply a moral teacher, not just a good guy who did amazing things. He is actually a, something God intends to say. And so when Jesus does something or says something, of course, but he just does something too, especially when he dies on a cross, that is God's, God saying, this is who I am, this is what I'm like. This is what salvation is, right? Uh, and all these things as well. So uh, have that in mind as we go forward. We uh, talked last week about John the Baptist. So we have John the author here, one of Jesus' disciples who wrote this gospel account later in his life. We also have John the Baptist who is going to be a part of the next uh, at least a few more weeks of sermons. So uh, we, we introduced him last week. Uh, but John is, John the Baptist is kind of like an Old Testament prophet, uh, preparer of the way, kind of the last one really before Jesus fully comes on the scene. And so I met him last week. Today uh, we'll hear some more from him as well and kind of John's commentary on him. But that's basically kind of where we're at. John is continuing to do that. He's preparing the way for Jesus. Uh, and John the author then continues to contrast Jesus with other figures. This week, not just with John the Baptist, but Moses and all that Moses represents symbolically and theologically in the Bible. And we have three big words today, glory, grace, and truth. And how, uh, we'll look at that, and how Jesus brings them all into the world over and against their opposites. So again, it's kind of like a contrast idea here as well, where the idea being where there is glory, there must be the absence of glory elsewhere. Uh, whether it's elsewhere in the biblical story or in our hearts or world. Um, where there is grace, there must be the opposite of grace elsewhere, uh, whether it's in our hearts or whether it's a part of the biblical story or whether it's in the world. Uh, where there's truth, there must be a lie, right? Uh, and so it, the, the point is Jesus is coming into the world and he's, and he's uh, pitching a stake, really, or John maybe is almost on, on his behalf, kind of saying, this is what he's about and he is... Uh, decidedly not other things. He is such th this and he is not this. Uh, know, knowing both the sides of that equation is crucial uh, for our knowledge of the gospel and, and our, um, the depth of our understanding of, of theology in the gospel of John and elsewhere too. Okay, so uh, that's, so we'll kind of hope that suffices to kind of summarize where we've been and where we're headed today. If um, you're, you're here for the first time. We'll catch you up as we go. John 1, 14 to 18. So we'll kind of jump mid-argument here, mid-intro uh, mid kind of in verse 14. The word being Jesus here. Have that in mind if, uh, uh, if you don't know that yet. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, 
He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Okay, so three big things today. We'll start with the first verse. It's a doozy when it comes to Christology, so let's unpack it a little bit. Uh, The word became flesh. So the first few words of verse 14. So now basically what's been hinted at and anticipated for the past couple of, you know, chunks of text in the past couple of weeks of sermons is now explicit. Heaven came down to earth. The word of God became human, became flesh. And the precise language here is really important. It says, became not looked like or appeared as a man or appeared as a human, but actually became a man. And a lot of early Christian heresies diluted this idea, which in turn made Jesus more God than man, but in so doing, you lose the gospel. Uh, Without his full humanity, how could he die for humans, uh, we might ask, right? Or the Bible itself kind of poses that uh, elsewhere, where if he's not fully us, how can he resemble or represent us and advocate for us on the cross and before his father. So he came, he became like that he was intending to save, right? Didn't become an angel to save angels or a rock to save rocks or an animal to save animals. He became human to save humans. And so the part of the gospel then is that there's this kind of one directionality to that idea. And that is God became like you in order to save you so you can be relieved from the impossible goal of striving to become more like him. All right, so whereas other religions might draw us upward in saying become like God, a Christian, the core of Christian theology says God had, not just wanted to, but had to come down to become like you in order to save you. It's a complete flip of the way uh, religious ideologies tend to, uh, you know, posit these ideas and uh, salvation and so forth. God became like you guys in order to save you, so rest easy. It's okay. You're going to be okay in Jesus. You can be relieved from the impossible task and goal of becoming perfectly uh, like him in order to be saved. All right, then it says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The the Greek word for dwelt is uh, literally dwell as in a tent or a tabernacle, which is a linguistic callback to the tent where God set up his presence among Israel before the more permanent temple was built later in Israel's history. So not all of you probably read this yet before in the Bible, but this is a picture of what that would have looked like after Israel was saved, when they covenanted, God covenanted with them uh, through Moses and at Sinai, which we'll talk a little bit about in just a minute because Moses is mentioned here. But, um, and one of the laws he initially commanded was how to construct this uh, temple, this uh, pre-temple, this movable tent-like structure where God would especially dwell in and where sacrifices could be made and worship could, uh, could take place. But there are chambers and walls and, and different layers of fabric in places where people could or could not go because of God's holiness was so holy that sinners couldn't enter his presence. That is also a big deal for coming up a little bit later on. But it's a, it's a linguistic callback. So the Greek is skeno'o, but the idea is that uh, John is intentionally, at least linguistically here, uh, calling us back to this idea and this story in the Old Testament. Jesus is then tabernacling among his people. He's uh, setting up the tent of God's presence, but now it's not a tent anymore, right? It is, um, or a temple. It is a body. 
It's also interesting that glory is mentioned too. There's another argument for this idea in that glory was where, or God's glory was in the tabernacle or in the tent in the Old Testament. Now it's saying we have seen God's glory in a person, right? So there's movement here from glory in a building uh, to glory now in Jesus. Now we really see the glory, the glory of God. Have that in mind as we kind of um, go forward here. So now glory has a new home in the flesh, and that's a nod to his deity as well. So we're kind of coming full circle here. We've talked about Jesus as, as God in verse 1. Uh, the word was with God, but he was God in verse 1. We talked about his humanity last week as well as even in this verse. He became flesh. Now kind of coming full circle and saying, not just in verse 18 where it says, the only God made the Father known, speaking of Jesus. Jesus is the only God who made God known because no one's ever seen him. Not only that explicitly, but we also have uh, this, this idea that glory now has resided in, in a human being. So we call this the incarnation. It's this incomprehensible mystery of how that could be, how God could not just appear as a human and as a ghost almost and, and, and look like human, but actually become totally human exactly like you are. Exactly like you are. How could that be? And it's, of course, it's a mystery, but it, it, it is an important doctrinal underpinning to this idea that, he, that Christ, even just in his makeup as fully God and fully man, is a harbinger of the bridge of grace between God and sinners that he would bring through his eventual death and resurrection. All right? So those are some important things. If you guys are new to that, John 1 just a good reference to memorize. If people ever ask you, you know, what do Christians really believe about who Jesus was? What distinguishes Orthodox Christians from Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons? Uh, this would be a great place to go, you know, if everyone knocks on your door and, and they want to talk to you uh, with pamphlet in hand, right? This would be a great, I've done that actually, uh, with, and other passages too. But this is a great place to say this is actually uh, not the only place, far from it, but a, a major uh, place we look to to understand that Jesus is not just a human being, not just a superhuman being, but human just like us, yet perfect and fully God at, at the same time, Okay. All that said now, kind of setting that aside a little bit, though we're not going to totally set it aside, uh, there are important implications here for us too when we tie Jesus to the idea of being a new tabernacle or a new temple, uh, especially for how we understand our holiness and our purity. Uh, it, it suggests there is a spatial way of understanding what it means to live pure lives. Okay, so we'll kind of unfold this here a little bit. I want to start, though, with a quote from Chad Bird, uh, who talks about this, actually, interestingly, from an Old Testament perspective. So he's kind of likening the idea there to what's happening with Jesus. And in theology, this is what we do, biblical theology sometimes. We see similarities between the Testaments and marked differences. Uh, he's kind of coming at it from a similarity standpoint um, to start here, at least. So we'll, we'll begin here. But he says this, in the Old Testament, Holiness was spatially anchored to the presence of God in the sanctuary. So talking about the tabernacle, the, the temple here. The closer something or someone was to the direct presence of God in the sanctuary, uh, the holier it was. That's why the inner sanctum is the holy of holies or most holy place, and the outer sanctum or room is only or just the holy place. Likewise, even the metals used in the tabernacle and temple signified this. Gold, then silver, then bronze, like concentric circles, were used in proportion to their nearness to the inner sanctum, or Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies was covered in gold. And farther out, 
the altar of burnt offerings was made from bronze, not gold, because it was further away. So basically, the nearer to God something was, the holier it was, whether people, metals, fabrics, bread, oils, etc. Sanctity was all about spatial proximity to God. Okay, so now take this idea and ask yourself, how does Jesus fulfill this biblical motif? And, and the answer is, if he is the new version of all of this, if he is the new temple, then how do we understand our holiness in relation to him, our purity in relation to him? And the answer is, not by what you do, but being close to the only one who is truly holy. This is why the Bible says elsewhere, Jesus is our sanctification. He is our holiness. He's not just saying pursue it. Uh, he actually doesn't say that, but he's, he brings it to us out of heaven and dwells it among us through his body. And this isn't to say that there's no place for us to talk about you know, a holy work or anything like that. Uh, the Bible actually talks much less in those terms than you might think. Uh, there's one reference in 1 Peter 1 that's noteworthy, but it's not super common. Instead, what you, what you see more of is this, the idea that you are saints, which is a word derived from holiness. You already are. You haven't earned that. You are, by your identity, pristine and perfect because the only holy one dwells within you. No one earns sainthood, right? Or we, we would say, as, at least as Protestants, we wouldn't say that. Um, no one earns it. It's a, it's a gift, um, so, in other words, this tells us that good works don't work for our holiness. Instead, they flow out of our union with the Holy One, union with Christ by faith, our belief in the gospel and the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Chad Bird says elsewhere, I get more sanctification or holiness at the Lord's Supper, at communion, than I would from a lifetime of moral striving. Holiness is a gift. It's not something you do. It's not something you achieve. It is a person. And so if that's the case, then um, we look at 1 John, or John 1, through kind of a different lens, right? Like, and we see that it says the word became flesh. It, it doesn't say the flesh, that flesh became God. Orientation matters here. God came down, he descended, and even after he ascended, after he rose from the dead, he did not invite us to ascend with him, but he said, I will, what? Be with you, right? Till the end of the age. One of the greatest promises he gives before his ascension. Christ does not invite the church to ascend with, but he sends down his Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, so the church becomes holy by the presence of Christ the presence of God within them, they become the new temple rather than something we strive for on the other end of our conversion. Or think about it this way. Holiness comes to us rather than, rather than is served as a standard to be kept. Holiness is a person rather than an idea. So then the question becomes, do I know this person? If Jesus is the tabernacle, the ultimate essence of holiness do we know him? Are we saved by him? Are we in him? Is he in us? Do we have the Holy Spirit? Those are the bigger questions to ask. Not, am I holy uh, by what I do? Or have I done a holy work today? One thing we'll see quite clearly in the gospel 
I mean capital G gospel here, gospel of John, is that Jesus doesn't expect people to live in a certain way around him. I don't know if you guys have ever read the, the gospels through that lens, but do that sometimes. There's not really this expectation that Jesus has on his disciples or his people, uh, it, it, like as if their holy living was like the ultimate predication, you know, of, um, of salvation. This doesn't mean the gospel does not have bearing on our lives or anything like that. But it's not insignificant that Jesus never once says to his followers, be holy. Do you guys know that? Jesus never once says to his fathers, followers, say fathers, followers, <laughs> getting late in the morning here, here we go, uh, be holy. Never once says it. And that's because that wasn't his mission, behavior modification. If he was the epitome of holiness, how could you say to someone else, be that? God doesn't say to you, be me, in other words, right? He says, follow me. Rest in me. Know who I am. Receive from me. And you'll be saved and be a saint and be holy. His mission is really raising the dead. His mission is touching unclean, unholy things and making them clean by his body. That's a big holiness motif too that I don't quite have time for this morning, all right? Now to spin off of that a little bit more, the second uh, point of elaboration here is talk more about law and grace. Uh, we talked about this last week. Actually, we talk a lot about it here, not because it's a, you know, a, a theological hobby horse for us, but because it is one of the main meta-narratives of Scripture. Uh, that, that just means, uh, you know, a thread of the storyline of Scripture that ties it all together. Uh, and already this is a repeated theme in John that we, that we need to see. It came up last week, not even halfway through the first chapter yet. But already a repeated theme in John is the beginning of the gospel has to do with the difference between law and grace. We have to see, this is not like some kind of, uh, oh, we eventually get to that idea later in our life as Christians when we mature more, when we understand theology a bit better. That's not how the Bible talks. The Bible is like, when the word became flesh, it was such something that it was so much not another thing. That's how this talks. Again, barely cracking into what the gospel is here. And John is, John is crystal clear that Jesus is not Moses. That Jesus brought qualities into the world, grace and truth, that Moses didn't, and vice versa. And they helped to tell the story, right? So verse 17, and I put, it, I put it up here again so you can see it. Let me read it again. For the law was given through Moses... Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So these are a couple of sentences tied together by a semicolon right there. Now, how you interpret this really matters. Like, if, if we look at, were to look at this and say, well, is that a building list? Uh, which would be to say, the law was given through Moses, and we still have that. But now on top of that, Jesus is adding frosting. He's adding more, another pancake on top of the the short stack or whatever, that now we have grace and truth in addition to the law, that would be a wrong way of understanding this, contextually and otherwise. What he's saying is this is actually two contrasting clauses or sentences here. What it's saying is the law came through Moses, and that's important. That tell, helps tell that part of the story, but now things are different. Now grace and truth, new qualities, came through Jesus, that were looked ahead to in the old, 
but they came through different mediators. They came through different people. They, they came through different like forms of representation symbolically and, and all that that meant for our lives. A few places to argue for this. There's, there's more. Verse 13 last week, contrasted, not compared, right? It said, we are not born of works or of the law. We are born of God when we're remade by faith. Verse 16 says, grace upon grace, not grace upon the law, as if the law was a foundation. Verse 15 says, John bore witness and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me, because he was somehow still before me. Kind of a trippy thing there, right? But what, what, what's happening is John the Baptist and Jesus are symbolically representing the two testaments of the Bible. They do this all over the place. I wish they had time just to preach just on that. I don't. Uh, Luke 1, their birth narratives are a great place for this. When, another place where, where Jesus says John's the last of the Old Testament prophets, so he's the greatest of them. But now least in the kingdom of God or greater than John, another place we see it. But I'll just say here for today that what's happening is you see a, an allegory. You see that the, what, basically what John is saying is the New Testament ranks before the Old, even though the Old comes before the New. We also see this in uh, the miracle of turning water to wine in John 2. Uh, if you weren't aware of this, Jesus, his first miracle, according to John, his first miracle is he's at a wedding. You guys read this? And it's a huge party, and all the wine is, like, dr- dr- drunken up or whatever, so it's gone. And Jesus turned, and it's a problem. <laughs> I like that that's the first problem, really, of Scripture, is there's no more wine, and Jesus fixes it. But... Um, There's all this water, so Jesus turns water into wine and and problem solved. But what happens after that is where the theology comes from. There's a lot more than what I'm about to say, just to be clear. We'll preach this in a few weeks. But um, one thing you see is this guy comes up, or guy or gal, and says, this is weird because normally what happens at these parties is the bad wine comes out later because people are so drunk they can't tell the difference. Remember that? Normally it's good wine first, then it's all the bad wine. But you've done something different, Jesus. You've brought the, you saved the good wine until later. And that's exactly how the Bible hangs together. The Old Testament is the old, not so great wine. And the New Testament, which comes later in the story, just like Jesus comes after John the Baptist, is the better wine. Jesus is that wine. The new covenant, the grace we have from Jesus that's given, not earned, is the better wine that we sip and drink and nourish ourselves on and take in communion to remember that these are decidedly different covenants. And the old wine is gone. We couldn't even drink it if we wanted to, even though we stumble over ourselves sometimes to do it when we go back to the systems of stipulations and rules and if-then statements and conditionality. But really, Jesus is saying, no, like, my, my, I'm here. The new wine is here, so, so drink well of it. Elsewhere, Romans eleven six. I want to bring an epist- a letter in here as well, an epistle, um, where Paul says, if it's by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. So again, note the contrast. Look at this clause. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Isn't that crazy? The first part of that you may have heard before, but maybe not the second part. But you see how that adds to the contrast? If it's by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. This is saying, the second we add a speck of us and what we do to the equation of salvation, grace instantly vanishes. 
It's like breathing your warm breath into the 10 below winter air, right? It's there for a second, then gone. The second you believe you have something to contribute to salvation or to contribute to staying saved, grace is gone. You can't have both. Law and grace are opposing forces in the Bible. Please hear that. Think of like two big, uh, you know, uh, bouncing balls that just can't, they, don't, they can't cross over and blend. They're just, they bounce off each other. Law and understanding law as between us and God and grace and understanding grace as between us and God, those are opposing ideas. They cannot be blended. Or just think of it this way. John 1 is saying there is no grace in the law. There is no grace in the law. Moses did not bring grace down from the mountain. He brought the law. There's there's no grace in saying, like Leviticus 18.5 says, part of the Old Testament law, there's no grace in saying, do this and then you will live. Keep these things and then you will stay in covenant. There's no grace in that. Uh, Augustine in the fourth century said the law threatened but did not bring aid because there's no grace in it. Commanded but did not heal because there's no grace in it. Made known uh, our feebleness but did not take away our, our feebleness. Right? Like if you, or think about like a, um, getting a, a ticket or something sometimes. Like once I got pulled over and didn't get a ticket, you just said, well, slow down. Oh, and buckle up your daughter. Well, I'm like, oh, man. I like a one-year-old daughter, and he's like, I know, <laughs> my wife is, I thought I had it done right, but he's like, no, okay, that's a sidebar. The, uh, <clears throat> so I felt an extra layer of like, okay, I had two things wrong here, but he said, I'm not going to use kind, right? Okay, here's the thing. There's no grace in getting a speeding ticket, but there is grace in the cop saying, I should give this to you, or I could, but I'm not going to. And there's more grace in him saying, actually, I'll pay it for you. That never happens, right? Because, but that's what Jesus, that's what Jesus did. John 1, here's what John 1 is saying. And you can't say this with the same veracity if you blend law and grace, okay? Telling you. You might think you can, you can't. But John 1 is saying, Jesus has brought grace and truth to us, love not judgment, and nothing you ever do in your life or have done or will do will take away that love because it is 100% one way and undeserved. And if grace and law could blend, it would be harder to have that same, say that with the same veracity, but have that same kind of hope. And so then the question I think becomes, how does this actually happen though, right? Because um, and I've done this for a couple of weeks. I always do this in my preaching. Uh, so you guys are like, okay, here we go. But um, some of you don't know this. We have to still ask one more question with these themes. And that is, how are these themes anchored? Like, um, how has Jesus brought us grace and truth ultimately? Where does he do that? Or the question from earlier, how can holy, holiness draw near to us without crushing us? It sure seems like the rules have changed. Doesn't it? What happened in the Old Testament when you got too near to God's holiness? It's a bad day. Bad day for you, right? How can the essence of holiness now walk among us and not expect anything from us and 
Heal us and save us, though they're the worst, we're, we're the worst of people in the universe, and yet holiness is somehow touching us and making our skin diseases go away and loving us. How can that be? The rules have changed. But how can it ultimately happen? Those are the questions we have to add on to these early parts of the Gospels and look ahead, otherwise we miss the whole point. And so to that, we're now, we're now going to turn. I want to talk about this third, the third theme here of glory again. I mentioned it earlier, but how in the Bible you have this theme of the glory of God leaving the building. Uh, you also have it like moving around a lot. You guys ever read these stories where you have, uh, think of the pillar of smoke and fire where God is represent, he's there amongst the people and he, he shows, presents that way and he's moving around and, um, and the people are following it, you know, uh, by day and by night. Or you have that kind of humorous story in, uh, must be Second Samuel, of the Ark of the Covenant, uh, which is like the presence of God inside the holy, but it's not there. It's outside moving around by itself on a cart and kind of like going over to the Philistines camp. And the people of Israel are like, where'd it go? And they're oh, there it is. And it's like moving by itself. You guys ever read this too? I think it's, for me, it's like one of the most humorous parts of that, of that whole portion of scripture. I'm like, it's just funny. It's actually kind of a judgment on Israel, but I'm like, I just think that'd be hilarious to watch it. But oh, there goes God. And he's not in the temple anymore. He's not in the camp anymore. He's in the camp of our enemies. Starts to raise questions. But really where you see it, is in the prophets and towards the end of the Old Testament where you see this theme of the glory of God up and leaving the temple and going somewhere else. All right, so a quick crash course on that. I threw it up here for clarity. A crash course on God's glory in the Old Testament. God's glory, present splendor renown, resides in the temple, but the prophets start to speak and they foresee a time and live through a time when the glory of God leaves the temple and goes elsewhere. But it's kind of left hanging as a form of judgment in response to the rampant sin of God's people, but we're unclear on what that means for what's next. It begs questions like, well, will the, will the glory come back to the temple? Or will it reside forever somewhere else? And what does that mean, theologically? Okay, this is what makes Jesus, Jesus Christ, and the way he's written about in John 1, such a resolving, happy answer to that question. And that is, Jesus is the one the glory went to. This is what the prophets foresaw. This is what God's always intending. In verse 14, we've seen his glory. The, not just glory, like it's a random adjective, but his, his glorious. But glory as of the only son from the father. This is God's glory in him full of grace and, and truth. And there are a few outflows of this idea we need to consider. So again, we're still trying to answer, we're moving towards answering the question, how is this all, you know, how can, how can this grace and truth come into, the, come into our lives and in the world? Um, but three outflows here. One we've already kind of been talking about, but I want to talk about it from uh, more of a resolving kind of way, and then into two other things that are even, uh, maybe even more important. The first is, the glory left the Old Testament temple and all it represented, think law, and landed on Jesus who represents grace. In other words, there's no more glory in the Old Testament proper. Doesn't mean that it's not God's word still or true or good and how it tells the story, but there's no more essence of God's glorious presence in the temple and in the law and in the old stories because Jesus is here. 
The Bible itself teaches this, 2 Corinthians 3, 9 to 10. I think, Peter, you actually preached this, didn't you, back in our 2 Corinthians uh, series. Changed my life. I remember, remember being here. Yeah, just weeping on the floor. No. Uh, here we go, though. Now, verses 9 and 10 talk about the Old and New Testament in contrast it, with glory terms. It says, if the ministry that brought condemnation, speaking of the law in the Old Testament, if that was glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness, speaking of the New Testament? For what was glorious has no glory now in comparison with the surpassing glory of Christ. You guys catch all that? This isn't like, this language does not allow for a piece of God's glory to remain with the Old Testament law as if some of it's still over you. Yeah, a lot of that sacrifice stuff, that's gone. The glory's left that. Some of the civil laws that kind of dictated life in the desert for Israel for a time. But the Ten Commandments are still over you. This doesn't allow for that type of interpretation. There's no more glory there anymore. None. Not half there and half with Jesus. The full glory has left. And the Bible says there is no more glory in the Old Testament proper. There's no more, there's no more like glory of God's presence in the idea that what we do saves us or keeps us in covenant with him. If you had your Bible like open before you, this is how it should help you to read it and understand it better. You should see glory leap off the pages of one part of it and land on another. The, it, the Bible itself makes it clear that not all of it is created equal. The Bible itself makes it clear that no more glory resides in the parts of it that had more to do with you and your ability to be holy. And that's incredibly good news, isn't it? There's no more presence there. God's intentions, God's glory, his ultimate presence is residing in a human being who loved you and bled for you and died for your sins and rose again. And your spatial, pro figurative spatial proximity to that by faith is what, is what makes us new, all right? And that's where we're gonna go next here to go a little bit deeper and to tie these things down, these themes down a little bit to the ground. I mentioned that last week if you weren't here, how... Sometimes if you talk about these themes and you don't anchor them to something, they fly away like a helium balloon, it, you know, and, and it's easy to do that. I've done that a thousand times, but uh, when we read these kind of things, we have to anchor them to something earthly and solid, and that solid rock is the rock of Christ, the, the cleft rock, which was cut open for us. It is ultimately the cross and, and the empty tomb. So it's interesting then when you look at the Old Testament through that lens because one of the many prophecies that talk about glory moving places, like I was mentioning before, is Ezekiel eleven twenty three, where it says, the glory of the Lord went up from within the city and uh, Jerusalem, which is where the temple was, and it stopped not just anywhere but above the mountain east of it. And so I forgot to throw a map up here, but if you look at a map, like a bird's eye view map of like the city and what was east of the city, you would see that east of the city is where the Mount of Olives was, you know, where Jesus spent most of his nights during Holy Week. Uh, Bethany was close by and Gethsemane was close by there as well, which is the garden that Jesus sweat blood in before he was arrested. Okay, so this is what all this means. Glory was not just leaving the temple 
nor was it even just generically residing in Jesus. But Ezekiel says, the glory was seen to be landing outside of the city, which is where Jesus died. Outside of the city, where Jesus' sufferings began, but ultimately where they ended. Hebrews 13 picks up on this many places. He died outside the city. And yet there's, uh, so there's more to consider here as well. Like if we start here and, and say, okay, the glory of God then has moved from the law to this moment. Uh, not just him, but here. Uh, the glory of God went east of the city where Jesus died. The, the, when we think about what, where is God's fame and renown and awesomeness most clearly seen, it's here when he died for sinners. That's what the Bible's saying and teaching. But going a little bit deeper even, there's one more angle to consider that will sound a little bit contradictory, but it's not, it's attention. And that is, the word glory itself is notably absent from some of these suffering, from really all of the suffering narratives in the Gospels. It's mentioned a lot in reference to his resurrection, but never explicitly, uh, implicitly maybe a couple of times, but uh, and it, it's true, right? This is true. But twisting the diamond, we also see that maybe there's an absence of glory here as well that also tells us something about theology and about our salvation. And that is, in this case, even though Jesus is, and his crucifixion are the essence of God's glory right here, he also is himself, and he'll say this in John 2, is the new temple. We said that today. John pitched his stake in that, right? But Jesus is going to say that. So we also have this picture of Jesus taking on a similarity to the Old Testament temple and how glory left him on the cross. God's glory left him. How he became a derelict ghost town when he was dying for our sins. Uh, one place you see that here is when he says, my God, my God, my God, Jesus says, why have you left me? Why have you forsaken me? You see, we saw this last, uh, was it last week, probably two weeks ago, actually, the idea that Jesus is the light of the world. And remember what it says in verse 5? The darkness can never overcome the light. And yet, it kind of did on the cross. When darkness had its hour, Jesus says, when the sun went out at high noon, somehow the light which could never be extinguished was extinguished. This is like the, the multifaceted, multi-layered, hard to fully grasp, but we need to uh, scandal of the gospel. And it's the same here with glory. Though this is the essence of glory, it's also the essence of the absence of the glory of God because Jesus was judged here in your place. He bore the brunt of the darker narratives of the Old Testament in your place. He became, as it says here, uh, exiled from his father. So we might, as exiles, far from God, be brought in. This is the new, even though it's the new center of glory, glory also left him on Good Friday so he might substitute himself uh, for, for us. So in this, Jesus is like, he's like the old temple and yet completely different at the same time. But both sides of that tell you what you need to know about salvation. That this is where we look for everything everything right now, saved alone by what he does here and on Easter morning. And yet the way he does that is by somehow being separated from the glory of God for a time, for those six hours on the cross. And in that moment, justice was being done. Uh, God 
gave his son over to hellish treatment, both physically and emotionally and spiritually. He was tortured. Uh, But Jesus willingly doing this for us, going to the cross and dying in our place and experiencing a dark, glorious moment um, that he might bring us in to experience uh, his peace and his rest forever. Okay, so last thing we'll say, we'll stop with verse 16 today um, and... I guess we read through 18, but you know what I mean. Uh, we'll say a couple things here about 16 before moving on next week, and that is this really cool phrase, uh, from his fullness, we have all received. I get, there's that word again. Uh, it's not from his fullness you have all given. None of you have ever given anything to God, and I hope that's good news. Maybe a bit offensive, but I haven't. None of you have ever given nor are asked to. The invitation is to rest and believe, uh, not to give. Uh, but look, from his, full, from his fullness, and I think partly a couple things from that phrase um, is this idea, I mean, linking that phrase with the cross, I, I think this invitation that John 1 has for us to think again, or for the first time, look what God spent to save me. Look what God went through. Look what he gave up. Look how he paid it all. Look how he experienced the darkness and exile from his father and all along never asking anything of us except to follow him and, and to be near. I, I think another way to say this would be um, with the fullness idea. God didn't do just enough to save us. The minimum amount, but more than enough. And we know that because it's grace upon grace. Right? Like, God's arm wasn't twisted into doing just, just enough, uh, the minimum amount, so we don't have to, you know, and then, oh, but now, shoot, if it was just enough, does my life hang in the balance now? What if I have a moment of unholiness tomorrow, and all of you will? Did I, did I expire that grace? Is it gone? See, what the gospel is, is God loved you so much, he did more than what was required to save you, much more. He gave up everything, everything for you. He became a run-down, burned-up, derelict ghost town. The father gave up his son, crucified among criminals, uh, only to come back, right? Uh, to, his light was, un, was quenched from within. Darkness had its hour. But all of that was his outpouring of love, for, for you and me. And to know that is, is to have hope and to have assurance that no amount of sin in your life will ever change that. And I hope that's freeing to hear. I don't know on what level you all need to hear that, but, but you do. I do. Fullness also means that God does not give out of emptiness. Right? Which... Um, I think is also a sign of grace. It's as if he is saying, I'll read this to close. It's as if God is saying, from my fullness, I give to you. Not out of my emptiness. That is, not out of my need for something from you. My grace is given on the expect, not on the expectation of return. For then grace would no longer be grace. So look to the glory of my son, not to the glory of man to my son's works, not to your own, to the truth, not to lies.
Though no one has ever seen me, he makes me known, and his cross discloses my love for you forever. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much, uh, God, for this, uh, this moment, really, we have here in John 1. It's always so much more. God, help us to understand, uh, like it says, how Jesus makes known the Father. I pray that you would make known increasingly yourself and your word uh, to us in the coming days and weeks and months and years. Uh, but God, we thank you for what we were able, what you showed us today, that the gospel is received. You, you showed us that grace and law are opposites, never to be blended or else grace would vanish. Uh, you, you affirmed us in that, that we are holy uh, by spatial proximity, by faith to Jesus himself, not by what we do. And you showed us that it's, it's the fullness. You gave out of fullness, not emptiness. We, you didn't make us, because you needed something from us because you were empty, but you gave out of the fullness of who you were and what you are. So we know that it's, it's not by works. It's not for utilitarian reason that we exist. It's simply because you wanted to share yourself with us, and the ultimate form of that sharing is your son. It's Jesus. So help us to receive him. Uh, and just as one of the pastors here, just on behalf of the church to uh, Jesus, we receive you into this church. We don't receive the works of our hands. We receive you. We don't receive a temple built with hands. We receive the temple built without human hands. We don't see, receive the circumcision made with hands, as that pastor said earlier. We receive the circumcision made without hands, not by what we've done but completely by the hands, the nail-pierced ones of, of our Savior. So thank you, Jesus, for today. Save us, persevere us in the faith, and, uh, and make us new in this gospel knowledge. We pray it in Christ. Amen. Amen.